my name's Brad. Happy to see you all. Um, so I have, I have a joke for you. Okay. You ready? What's the difference between black-eyed peas and chickpeas? No one? Well, the black-eyed peas can sing us a song. Chickpeas can just hum us one. <laughs> yes. You see, there's this, uh, there's this rite of passage that comes with being a dad that you can tell dad jokes, guilt-free. And no one thinks you're weird too often. But uh, yeah, there's this also rite, that, rite of passage that comes with being a dad. It's also the ability to put together things. Uh, how many of you have been handed a box with a toy in it? And you thought and you hoped and you prayed that in the middle of this box, this toy would come out completely assembled. Right? Does it happen? No, I have bought floor models of toys so that this would happen, or Goodwill toys, so I don't have to put things together, but it never fails. There's always toys that come across that say, some assembly required. And we know that some assembly means a lot of assembly. And it is confusing. And who reads the instructions with anything? How many of you read instructions with Ikea? No, you, look, you read instructions? Okay, never mind. I look at the picture and I think, I can figure this out. And I put the instructions away. And then we start going. And then never, always at the end, of, end of the building project, there is this baggie of spare parts. And, uh, and when I'm putting together a toy around my, my oldest son, Judah, who has this uncanny ability to catch every single detail, um, he al he'll always say, Dad, what about all those? And, and I usually will go, nah, don't worry about it. We'll figure that out later. And we do, because the toy falls apart. And then all of a sudden, we come back, and I go, that's what those are for. That's those toy, those little parts keep the toy from, from falling apart. And, and then that's, that's what most of the assembly is, and I just don't want to deal with it until it breaks. This is sort of what's happening in 1 Peter. We get to this point of the passage, and the passage that Ali read is a wonky one. It's wild, right? Jesus dies, descends into hell, makes proclamations to the spirits there that were there from the days of Noah. And you're going, what on earth is Peter talking about? I have to remember that Peter is doing this, uh, uh, he's making a huge argument. And we know if you've been here the past couple weeks or if you're familiar with the, the point of First and Second Peter, is he's encouraging these five churches in what's modern day Turkey uh, about how to stand firm in the face of these trials that they're facing. And last week, Handsome Dan, or Danley the Manly, as Dylan calls him, uh, he's got more talent in his little finger than I do in my entire life. Uh, he, he taught last week about how we build our lives on a cornerstone. And the first aspect to, to withstanding trial is to have a foundation. And he used the passage that Jesus talks about in Matthew with, we don't build our, our house on, on sand that shifts and, and collapses with any kind of amount of rain. Instead, we, we build our, our house on the rock, and Peter calls it a cornerstone. Peter's quoting from Psalms 118 about the cornerstone of Christ. Everyone rejected him, but we build on him. And then Isaiah talks about this cornerstone, and it's this building metaphor. And Peter's talking about how we build our lives, not just so we can get through it, but so that we can withstand and thrive in the midst of these trials and persecutions. 
And so at the end of chapter 2, Paul, Peter, not, I'm going to do this again. I did this two weeks ago. I called the guy who wrote the Psalms. It's David, by the way. I called him Peter. I was just having brain farts all over the place, if that's appropriate. But that's the technical term for what I was having. Peter is telling us how this church, who is facing persecution from Nero himself, being put to death for being Christians and how they can thrive and have hope. And then he goes into, at the end of chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, these sections of the Bible which we go, what is he taught? He, ta- he uses the word submit. How many of us like the word submit? Zero. We don't like to submit to anybody. But he says, hey, workers, submit to your bosses. You know, be a good employee. Uh, and then he uses the phrase that every pastor wants to run from. Wives, submit to your husbands. And then we duck. And then he goes on further and says, husbands, also submit to your wives. So it's a two-way street, guys. You can't just say, wives, submit. When I say that to Carrie, she goes, don't submit, and she runs away. But it's a two-way street, because in those days, it was countercultural for, for husbands to actually love their wives and listen to what they have to say and then submit to them. And so Peter's telling them how they can live this countercultural life in the midst of intense persecution where most of them were getting killed or ostracized or losing their land or, or their livelihood or being put out. And so he says, look, this is, this is part of our, our, our following Jesus. We submit to one another in Christ. This is why we do this. And so we can't skip these passages, uh, even though we are going to skip the submission part, just, just to get to what Peter's building to. You see, he's been building this sustained argument and his argument comes to a head in the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, we, we're not going to skip them. We're not going to skip the part about Jesus descending into hell. That's all important. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on there, but hopefully we could spend a little time, and then when you get home today or tomorrow or sometime this week, you can have your quiet time and you can do some study on your own. What was Peter talking about? Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is used for teacher, teaching rebuking and instructing each other in how we can live our lives uh, honoring Christ. However, one of these passages, this passage about Jesus descending, we feel like you're left holding a bag of spare parts. Like, what do I do with this? How is this going to help me? But as we look deeper into the passage, as we, we're going to fast forward to Peter's point in chapter 4 and then come back to the end part of chapter 3 and figure out what these parts are all for. Because when, it's when the toy breaks that we understand what those weird, that those weird pieces are actually helpful. And when we encounter trials, we can look back on this section of the passage and go, oh, that's what this is for. And as we look deeper in the passage, one aspect that we'll uncover is that our ability to withstand not only trials, but our ability to withstand and live faithfully in the middle of them depends on where your hope is placed. Because if our hope is placed in the right spot, like Dan with the cornerstone last week or what Peter was talking about, you can withstand them. To help us a little bit understand this, so, so skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 1. It begins with the word therefore. We'll get to that therefore in a minute. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live uh, the rest of their earthly lives for evil or human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them 
and they're reckless and wild living, and so they heap abuse on you. Here's what was happening. In those days, uh, there was these new group of Christians that either, uh, there, was, there was hardly any Christians that grew up in the church, which is what makes up a lot of the church today. Most of the Christians either converted from Judaism or some, fort of Ro- some form of Roman or Greek paganism. And they came to Jesus. This meant that they were no longer living those lives anymore. They had a change. They don't go around worshiping the gods and goddesses that the Romans used to. And it was normalized in their culture that they did. They, they would do so. This also meant that they didn't worship God and, and, and follow Jesus in the same way that the Romans worshiped their gods and goddesses. This is why verse 3 mentions, you've spent enough time doing what the pagans do. We don't do that anymore. Pagans is, is kind of a harsh term, but what, what Peter is wanting to say is, those who don't follow Jesus, you lived enough of your life like them that you don't need to do this anymore. And then he uses this line in the very beginning, for you're done with sin. And I read that and go, but wait a minute, I kind of not. I still, I still sin, right? How many of you still sin? We all do. All raise your hand, except for maybe one or two of you. But we all still have that problem. We all still fall into it. But what Peter's getting at is, look, you're done with that lifestyle. The lifestyle of sin and going against what the scriptures teach. And at that time, the scripture was mainly the Hebrew Bible. Most of the New Testament wasn't even written yet. Might have had James. But at this time, it's like we, we know what the scriptures teach us. We don't live according to the sinful ways. We're done with that lifestyle. That way doesn't mark you anymore. And so these people have drawn a line in the sand and, and, how they, and the, how the world acts and how the world worships and who the world worships and how they worship doesn't define them and how they should live, how they should work, and how they should think. And this got them into a whole bunch of weird accusations. There was a bunch of wild claims that Christians in those days, they called them cannibals. They said Christians are cannibals. Why? because we eat the body and blood of Christ, or what we know as communion. They thought, you are eating a human body, you are a cannibal. Now, it wasn't. It was likely bread and wine, or we use bread and juice, and they come in the communable fashion over there. It's not a human body, but they thought, they took it literally, y'all are cannibals. And then they accused them of having orgies. Why? Because Peter says in one of his passages, greet each other with a holy kiss. Wait a minute. Y'all are practicing orgies, too. So they said, you're cannibalistic, you have orgies, and then they said, you're following a wild superstition or a bad religion, not the band, a bad religion. You're following this, uh, it doesn't even make sense what your religion is. But the main uh, argument against Christians that day is that they called them atheists, which is weird, because when you think of an atheist, what do you think of an atheist? Someone who doesn't believe a god. There is no God. But in Roman culture, an atheist meant that you didn't subscribe to the many gods that they believed in. In fact, if you didn't agree with all hundred or whatever more of them are, you're an atheist. If you didn't worship all of them, you're an atheist. So here you have Christians saying, we worship the one true God, and they come back with, you're an atheist because you don't worship our multiple many gods. You're an atheist, and therefore you do not subscribe to the culture of Rome, and you're the problem in the world today. Christians are the reason why Rome was burned, because they're atheists. And so they started getting pressure 
and persecution because of this, highly offensive to them. And so they had a wide range of social costs that came along with it, physical abuse, prison, confiscation of property, and even executions. In Roman culture, uh, this was the root of the persecutions that followed for all of them. Nero said that they started the fires because of this. We've seen the gladiators and how they stood and burned at the stake or eaten by lions. It's because they were atheists and they wanted to rid them of the culture. It was the reason they were ostracized from their neighbors and it's because they decided to stand for what was right in God's eyes and not compromising and tolerating what was right in the eyes of culture. It got them into a lot of trouble. Have you ever had to do something similar to this? I mean, we've all had the peer pressure talk, right? What's the line? If, if, if all of your friends jumped off a cliff, would you? And the answer that I gave to my mom was, well, how high is the cliff? And if enough of my friends jump off, does it make it less, <laughs> less high? So if all my friends go first, it's only like 10 feet. It's not that big of a deal. Yes. But have you ever stood in the face of holding to what is true and what is right and what the scripture teaches when everyone around you is doing the opposite. I'm sure if you think back in your life, there might be one or two occasions, and, and I'll give you three examples from mine. Uh, growing up, we lived in a cul-de-sac of Samantha Circle, and on that, on that street, you had my house here in the corner, you had the, the, every neighborhood has these people, those are the weird neighbors, and they never came out, they left, and they came back, and they closed their garage, and you never saw them. Every neighborhood has that, right? And so, and then, then next to them was Matt and Andy's house, and then two doors down was Kevin, and two doors down was Christian, and two doors down was uh, Doug and his brothers, and then across the street from Doug was Tim, Rob, and Jeremy. These were our friends, and every day we would go do stuff. You know, we would ride bikes, we'd make tracks in the dirt, we would do a whole bunch of just mischief that kids get into. We figured out how to make napalm one day, which is a story in and of itself, but that was fun. And, uh, and especially when you throw it at people. But one of the times, you know, we hung out and then sometime about high school, I came in and they were all starting to experiment with drugs. And I looked at them and went, this, this isn't really right. And, and it, for the grace of God and the fear of my father, uh, I said, no, probably more the fear of my father than anything, but we said no. And I remember walking away that day going, this is probably the last time I'll ever hang out with these kids. And it was. Instead of having friends on my street, I had no friends on my street. Then it was name calling. Uh, there were, I was the butt of pranks and jokes and it didn't go well. Then in college, there was another situation that, that happened like this. It was my third year and I realized that or I had these group of friends, and we were roommates. We surfed together before math class in the morning, and then we, we'd eat breakfast. Well, I ate breakfast alone because they were all slept in until 8 o'clock. That's late. And, uh, and, but we'd have lunch together. We had classes together. And then I noticed something about them. They were good guys, nothing salacious about them, but I noticed that the way they talked, the way they treated people, the way they treated each other forced a trajectory in their lives that I didn't want any part of. And it didn't go along with the way God was calling my life. And so I said, you know what? This, is, this isn't good. And so I changed roommates. I stepped away from them. And then pretty soon, the same thing happened with them as what would happen with my friends on the street. Oh, there goes Brad. He's too good for us. Blah, blah, blah. All this stuff, right? Another ostracization. Never got beat up. Just 
made fun of, set apart, whatever. Then there was a time I was a valet in a major hotel. It, it, it's important that you hear the V in front of valet, not ballet. This does not do ballet. I was a valet. I parked cars. It was fun. We got to drive so many cars and, and so many exotic cars and, and, and so many cars got crashed, and I'm sorry if it was one of yours, but we, we were, I was a valet driver. I liked the running. It, it was good for my, I, was, I played soccer in college, believe it or not, and so it was fun. But there was a group of guys there that they decided that they would find their way into the hotel parties that were up in the, the penthouse, and they would do parties in the garage. There was a lot of drugs, alcohol, and whatever is going on back in there that I would run by and see going, oh, wow, this is why I don't valet park anymore. I understand this. And I said, you know what? I, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Then they found out I was a Christian. And then they said, oh, you're too good for us. And, and while I said, no, I'm not. I just, that's not the way I want to organize my life. I'm not going to do that. And then the, it started to happen, right? My shifts never got covered. I, I would all, they would never cover me. They, they never wanted to stand next to me on the curb because we were supposed to stand like this shoulder to shoulder waiting for the people to come in with their fancy cars and they never wanted to stand there and so the ostracization kept continuing and continuing perhaps you have similar experiences maybe you have worse ones where you were actually physically harmed or or abused or something even worse perhaps you decided not to cook the books and you were honest about your call sheet uh, perhaps you didn't cut corners Perhaps you chose to break the cycle of alcoholism in your family and it didn't go well with your family and now your family wants nothing to do with you. Maybe there was another issue in your family where you're like, you know what, we're going to put an end to this and as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord and it breaks ties with your family of origin and that makes life hard. Perhaps you changed your life and, and the way you lived your life so you wouldn't be tempted by pornography anymore. Perhaps you spoke up for the person in the room who was being marginalized. Or perhaps you spoke up for the person in the room who was being mistreated and it didn't end well for you. Perhaps you decided to, and you said, you know what, I'm not sleeping with my girlfriend or my boyfriend until we're married. I'm not going to go along with, this, with the world's idea of what sexuality means. I'm not going to buy into that. Perhaps you've not bought into the narratives that pull you more towards culture than they do towards Christ, and you felt the brunt of that. Perhaps you've decided to and committed to, like the people here in 1 Peter, to live your lives as dictated by the scriptures instead of by a political party or instead of by media pressures or popular opinion or what the latest and greatest Instagram or Facebook post tells you. And what's happened is maybe you felt isolated, mocked, labeled, Maybe you've been left out. Perhaps you've been physically hurt, mentally abused, or emotionally depleted, and you're sitting here wondering, why am I doing this? Because in a world where everyone's going one way and you decide to stand firm and go another way, you're going to get hit with things. Standing against the current of culture is exhausting. And for anyone who's done it, you know this feeling. The temptations to give in seem to mount. Go back to the way you were. Go along with what everyone's telling you to do because it's going to be a lot easier. It's all easier if you don't stand firm. It's easier if you just pick your feet up off the ground and float with the current. That way no one messes with you. It's easier to go along with them than to go in the opposite direction. But this is exactly what Peter is trying to get them to not do. He's encouraging these Christians, don't give in. Don't do that. 
That's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are as a child of God. It's not who you are as a follower of Christ. And that's not who you are any longer. That's who you used to be. Don't do it. And you're going to catch persecution because of it. Stand firm anyways. It's worth it. Stand firm. Paul says the same thing to Timothy, who was a, a young pastor in a church of, in the town of Ephesus. And he says it both times in both letters. In 2 Timothy 3.14, it says, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of, because you know from who you've learned it, and how from your infancy you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Stand firm. Timothy in the town of Ephesus, where the, the, the main god that was worshipped there was Artemis, and everybody worshipped Artemis. You can read about Paul's response in Acts 16 and 17. Paul started a riot by saying, we believe in Jesus and not Artemis, and everyone wanted to kick him out of town, and Paul said, no, I'm going to go fight, and everyone looks at Paul and goes, you're crazy, man, don't do it. Get out of here. Stand firm, he says to Timothy. And if you notice something with me, both in Peter's writings and, and Paul's writings, and he can even expand this and go into James and even some places in Jesus, there is never any tips on how to avoid persecution. They don't say pray this way or hide in your closet. Uh, there's never anything to say this is how you get out of it. Yet there is command and, and principle after principle that says this is how you withstand it and stand firm in the middle of it. So why do we stand firm when everyone around us is telling us that we should compromise? Why do we have uh, these seemingly extra pieces of the scripture in our hands? Why is it important to? You can even look in the, in the end of the Bible, if you look in Revelation, and if you don't want to get too tripped out by what's going to happen, you can look in the first four chapters. And but then you see Jesus going to church after church, and he's pointing the finger at them, and his accusation against all of them is, you've compromised, you've tolerated, you've gone along with the sins of Baal, you've gone along with the sin of Jezebel, you built the Asherah poles, and he's, he's uh, showing the, the churches in Revelation are the same churches that we see, or the temple that we see in the Old Testament, how they thought, you know what, it's just an Asherah pole in the temple, it's no big deal. It's not going to be a big thing. They're, they're going to be accommodated, and they we're going to be tolerant of, of that view, and we're going to build this. We'll let them do their sacrifices to Baal on our altars. It's no big deal. And then you continue on the Old Testament, and God goes, no, that's a pretty big deal. Stand firm in the face of culture. So why do we stand firm? And, and, and for, to answer this, uh, we have to go back into chapter 3. Chapter 4 is stand firm. It's, it's the admonishment to all of us. Don't give in. You're done with that lifestyle. You are marked differently now. You believe in a whole different set of morals and codes that don't necessarily line up with what the world is teaching us. We can say that today, too. Christians today who, who, who follow what the Scripture says, who, who live according to the Scriptures, have a different moral code than the people who don't. Have you noticed this? Or is it just me? I've noticed it, so maybe you have to. But Peter is saying the same thing to them as he would say to us. Don't give in. This is how you live. You're going to be countercultured. You're going to submit to one another. You're going to love one another as you loved yourself. 
in your house, in your job, in, in how you deal with the government. You're going to be kind. You're going to be gentle. And because of what Christ has done to you, for you. And these guidelines under this, for this group all come to a place where it says, this is how you will have the ultimate victory upon your neighbors. Because the question that we all have when you're standing firm, when you're doing something that stands, that stands against culture is, when will I be told that I'm right? Yeah, we all want to be vindicated. Uh, there, there have been times in our house where we've had arguments, and usually I do something wrong. But when I win the argument, which is like I'm one for maybe 3,000, uh, when that happened that one time, I left the room and went, vindicated. And then we got into another argument about me <laughs> bragging that I was vindicated. But we all want that, right? We stand for what's right, and we want to see the reward for this is why we do so. And Peter's saying, you might not be able to see the reward, but we still hold on to what's true. We still hold on to what's right. And he gives us a clue on how to do this. And for that, we back up into chapter 3. In order to stand firm, Peter says, we must remember why we do so. Why are you standing? If you're just standing firm and taking a stance and you don't know why you're doing this, you're not going to stand firm for very long. And so it's best to know why you do so. It's best to know why you do anything. Uh, when you do the right thing and you stand firm and you're going to get tossed right, left, up and down, you're best to know why you do it. And so Peter, here's what he says. But even if you should suffer, this is in verse 14 of chapter 3, for what is right, you are blessed. This is an echo of Jesus' teachings, both in Matthew 5 at the, at the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 10. He says, blessed are you when you suffer for my sake. Because basically what's happening to me is going to happen to you, and I'm on your side. The word blessed is, I'm with you. I agree with you. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. There's the first step. Why do we live the way that we live? Because Christ is Lord. And that's a huge statement in this culture. Because in this culture, what was getting those people in a lot of trouble is they would say Christ is Lord when everyone else around them would say Caesar is Lord. So this is Peter flipping the script saying, no, no, you have a different authority in your life. Your authority isn't culture, and what culture says is right or wrong, or what culture goes along with. That's not your Lord. That's not your boss. Revere Christ as Lord. And then he says this, which gets quoted all the time, and it says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks, who asks you to give the reason for your hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Be prepared to answer why you're doing this. Because when you don't go along with what everyone's saying, you're going to say, hey, why, why do you agree with this view? And everybody else agrees with this view. If you don't have your answer, you're going to be like, well, I don't know. I guess I'm wrong. And then you're not standing firm anymore. Uh, it's, it's not saying that, hey, we should go in and get in Facebook arguments on everything. That's not what Peter's saying. We shouldn't argue uh, all the time. Peter's not saying go pick a fight with people. He's saying you have your reasons. You stand firm and you'll be noticed. You're going to stand out when you don't give in. Be ready to give your answer. Be ready because when you don't go along with it, 
you're going to get asked. Peter doesn't say this. He doesn't say that we go out and argue the finer points of theology. Instead, be prepared to give the reasons why. In all of my time, those three minor moments in my life, no one ever asked me, oh, you agree with this because, well, do you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? That never came up. Nope. Uh, they didn't say, oh, you must believe in, in the impeccability of Christ. Yes, but no, that, that, that question never came up. They never asked me my finer points of theology. They never asked me, well, why do you believe there is a God? They never even got to that. See, when we read this passage, we can get tripped up because the word that is there for the word answer is the word apologia, which means to give a defense. And so we think we have to go defend. And, and, we, and sometimes when we think of the word defense, we think offend or, or offense. And we have to go out and tell people, tell everyone that they're wrong, and this is why. That, that's not what Peter's going to do. Now, apologetics is great. I like apologetics. I like reading the philosophy behind it. It's a fun study. And I encourage you all to get into why the, the belief around Christianity is right. It's a good thing to study. That's not what Peter's getting at here. Apologetics is fantastic, but Peter's asking us to defend something else. Peter's asking you, if you look closely, he says, defend the reason you have hope in the middle of this. Always be prepared to give an answer, not to the finer points of theology, but the answer for your hope. Why are you even standing firm? Because deep down, when you know what your hope is, and you've defined the place where your hope comes from, your life will be shaped around it. If you have your life's hope built on being liked by the world or built by being accepted by what everyone else around you is saying, you'll go along with whatever they say is appropriate. But if you have your hope in Christ, you'll shape your life by what he teaches. You won't try and find, to bend, you won't try and find and bend passages to agree with you or, or accommodate your insecurities whether or not someone likes you or not. Because when your confidence isn't based in public opinion, your confidence is now based in Christ's opinion. In essence, you don't care what everyone else says. You know what's right. You know why you have hope. You know why you stand instead of give in. What does Jesus think is right or wrong? How does Jesus answer the ethical questions that we get into? Not how so-and-so answered it, not by how this person answered it, or this author answered it. No, how does... How does Scripture shape you? That's where the hope is found. And when the hope of Christ shapes your life, you will not be moved. This is the hope that anchors us in, in a Christ-centered reality. And the winds of trials and persecutions and difficulties happen. We're not moved. Hebrews 6 says it this way. She writes, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, a firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where a forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. The Hebrew people who are being written to the book of Hebrews are going through the same thing. Where's their hope? The whole book of Hebrews is about Christ saying, this is your hope. This is what you're built on. This is the firm foundation. This is the cornerstone. And Peter spells it out in this wild passage that we get to. And he, we'll start that. Verse 18, for Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body and made alive in spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made the proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient from long ago. 
when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It was only a few people, eight in all, and they were saved through water. The water symbolizes a baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a, a pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is now at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. And there is no way in the next three weeks that we can unpack all of this within our time frame. There is a lot here. Peter quotes from an apocryphal book of Enoch, which is also a wild book that we should pay attention to. It's not in our scriptures, it's in, in the apocrypha. Uh, and and he, he's bringing that in because they would have all been understanding of what's, what Enoch says or that book. But Peter brings into this picture of Noah's Ark. No, uh, and partly because in the book of, or in the chapters of Noah in Genesis 6, you see Noah and what's Noah doing? God looked down on the world in Genesis 6 and he saw a world full of wickedness. And he says, I regret making humanity. And then what's he say? But Noah. And so here you have Noah and his family of eight standing firm against the world who was surrounded in wickedness. And Noah built an ark. And Noah got on the ark. And there was only eight of them in the ark and all the animals two by two. Well, that's a lot of animals. And, and, and yet Noah stood firm when he was probably deemed crazy. He stood firm. And was Noah vindicated? Yes. It's the question that they're asking is, when will I be vindicated for standing firm? Noah was vindicated for standing firm. And then there's another time, and we're, not, we're, not, we're going to skip over some of this, but essentially Peter is saying this is where we get our hope. The part about Noah is about victory over the dark forces of evil. In the beginning of Noah, it talks about the Nephilim, which is oh, an encyclopedia of ideas and thoughts that, again, we're not going to have a lot of time to get into. But then Jesus, after the flood... Those Nephilim have been dealt with. They've been sent to hell. And now Jesus descends after his death and resurrection into hell and makes proclamations to those evil spirits, saying that, hey, look, I've vindicated everything. I've won. The death that those evil spirits were bringing to the world in Genesis 6 has been dealt with in the person of Christ. It's the definitive announcement. He's not preaching then in hopes that they'll be saved. That's what some of the confusion is. He's not saying, and now you can come forward and have an altar call in hell. That's not what he's saying. He's standing there saying, nana, 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 or as my son says, nana, nana, boo, boo, I win. You have no more power over these people. And Peter's reminding them that the people in, in, in these churches that the darkness that they see in this world, though it might seem like they're winning, though it might seem like they're having their run of the course, they've already been lost. The battle's already won. And he's encouraging these little group of Christians who face persecution from their local authorities and these shadowy spiritual forces that seem to give their local, these authorities power ever since the fall of man. He's encouraging saying, no, 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 no. Jesus has triumphed over all of these dark spirits. There's a view in theology called Christus Victor, and it, it's this view of the, that when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just 
uh, dying for our sins, which he did as a substitution of our sins, but he was also beating back the powers of Satan and hell. You can read in 1 John that John says, and by the crucifixion, he has beaten back the powers of the devil. This is what he's saying. He says, these authorities, these principalities, these powers that seem to have control, don't. So don't give in to these people who pretend to have power. They don't have it anymore. In fact, the reason why you stand firm is because you follow the person who's actually in charge, the person who holds the keys to death and hell, the person who's running the joint now, the person who says, those guys have been dealt with, and I went down there to tell them myself. In other words, Peter's saying there is nothing in heaven and hell who can ever remind who can ever take away this hope that we have in Christ the battle has been won and in verse 22 it says and all authority has been put in submission to him so remember the submission parts we submit to each other we we follow along we care for and everything is under the power and authority of Christ we submit to Christ his view on the world, what he says is right or wrong. And it's encouragement to these people, and it's encouragement to us who are likely to suffer mistreatment under human authorities, not just unkind words every once in a while, which we can get, or, or casual mistreatment or brutality, but maybe even the official or legal persecution from doing what is right. Peter writes this section to show that no one can harm us for standing for truth. No one can harm you. So not only stand firm, stand with hope, stand with confidence. Stand firm knowing the decisions that come your way to compromise your beliefs. Stand firm knowing that the pressure that brings upon you to give up is, is already been dealt with. Stand firm when the temptation comes to accept truth disguised as a lie, or a lie disguised as truth. Stand firm knowing the hope that you have isn't from being culturally relevant or liked by everybody. Stand firm with the hope that Christ is the one who vindicates your stance, not the world around you. This is the little piece in the bag, right? This is the little piece that we get where it's like, hey, I've, I've built this life around Christ and I'm coming through and now everything's coming, to get, coming against me and everything's falling apart. And Peter says, don't forget these pieces. Don't forget about this. Put these in the assembly of your life because this is why we stand firm. But then he adds this little bit at the end of it, right? Always be prepared to give an answer. Uh, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you with grace and humility, which is how, how difficult is that, right? When you know you're right, how hard is it to be gracious? How hard is it to be kind, with grace and humility, we stand with hope. Our hope is built on the foundation of Christ, on the cornerstone of Christ. And we know this, and we're confident about it, but we're not jerks about this. So when you're asked, hey, why do you believe uh, in this view of biblical sexuality? Well, I'm not going to be a jerk and tell everyone that they're doomed to hell because they believe something different. No, with grace and humility... I'm going to give my answer. We see this in the model of Jesus. He's asked all the time, how come you're doing this, Jesus? How come you heal on the Sabbath? And then he'd look at them and go, you numbskulls, 
No, he called him a brood of vipers once or twice, but that's, that's different. It was a different thing. But he, he says, no, because we answer to a different authority. Why do we stand firm? It's because we have a different moral code than the world around us, and that's okay, and that's good. In our world today, there is going to be times when you are going to be tempted to give up your view on what is right or wrong to go along with what everyone else is saying, with what everyone else is doing, with what popular culture tells us to do. And the encouragement from Peter to us is to say we stand firm because we know what this teaches. And if you don't know what this teaches, it's time for you to figure out because the pressures are just going to increase. They're just going to get worse and worse and worse. Know where your hope comes from. Know why. Because our morality doesn't come from the culture around us. Our morality doesn't come from who's in office or who's not in office. Our morality doesn't come because somebody had a compelling Facebook argument. Our morality doesn't come because our friend said this or our friend is this way, therefore I'm changing everything about me to fit in with what they think. No. There are a lot of gray passages in Scripture, but there are a lot of black and white ones as well where they tell us this is how we should stand. This is how we should believe. This is where our hope comes from. And when you know your why, it's easier to stand. When you know your why about your goals, when you make a goal, you're supposed to figure out, this is what I want to look like. And Peter's showing us throughout this section of Peter to say, look, we're supposed to look like Christ, who has power over all of these principalities and darkness. When we look like Christ, that's our hope. Our hope is in Jesus. Our morals come from Jesus. We believe what Scripture says about our lives, not what everyone else says about our lives. Stand firm. So in your life today, in your life this week, stand firm. Persecution's coming. If it's not already here, it's coming. And I'm not trying to make a political statement about anything. It's just when you follow Jesus, you're going to catch heat for it. Stand firm. Don't give in. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this encouragement from Peter that we stand firm in what you have taught us. We stand firm knowing where truth comes from, knowing what truth is, and that there is a truth. And his name is Jesus. We stand firm in our hope that even though everyone else might think we're crazy, you stand with us and said, if they think you're crazy, it's because of me, and you're in good company. For I have overcome this world. You say this to your disciples when they're going through troubles. Don't worry about what the world says. I've overcome this world. Stand firm. And so God, I pray that Bethany Ballard here today would be known as a church that stands firm with the world around it that we not compromise like the churches in Revelation, that we not tolerate wrongdoing, but that we stand firm with grace and humility, that we not give up our hope just to fit in. We thank you for your example 
one that we can follow, one that we can embody. And may we stand firm in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name we pray.